Hello. Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the Sermon Podcast. Hey, good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Good to be gathered together. Uh, just a little... Uh, note on the video from India. So in 2010, um, Adam, who leads our mission team, Adam and Stacy and I and their children and a few others um, had a chance to travel to visit with um, this ministry and travel to some of the tribal regions of India. And it's, um, this is just a, a little uh, note on how we're connected globally is um, the aesthetic of this space is actually inspired by those churches in India. Uh, concrete floor, white walls, and open ceilings. So if you go back and watch that video on um, you know, Instagram or whatever, uh, we wanted to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in India. And so um, that was a little bit of the design, uh, which, was, which was really, really cool. So uh, this morning, as uh, Emily, or as Chris and David mentioned, we're uh, closing our, uh, our, our study in the book of Titus. We have two more weeks in this series called Dear Church. Uh, next week, we're going to be looking, I'm going to be walking us through Philemon, and, uh, and, and there's a little dissension in our church family, for those of you who are wondering why are people laughing about that, how do you pronounce this um, person's name? So Philemon is next week, and because uh, <laughs> I have the pulpit right now. At one time, I'll say the pulpit is, you know, um, and, uh, and, and it, it's going to, we're really excited about that. And then the following week, David's going to walk us through um, the letter to Jude. But this morning, we're going to look at Titus chapter three. We've been in Titus for the last three weeks, and I'm grateful to dive in together this morning. So if you want to open with me, uh, we, if you are in need of a Bible, you can raise your hand, and um, we would love to get you a Bible. Um, us, you know, if you have one uh, in print or on your phone or whatever, um, open up with us here. We're going to dive in together. We're going to read all of chapter 3, which is 15 verses, then we're going to spend our time really focusing on the first eight verses. Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. You guys ready to go? All right. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things so that the believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that so many... uh, Years ago, your Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to pen this letter to Titus, who was called then to teach and instruct and encourage the churches, the local uh, churches on the island of Crete. And we ask in these next few moments that it would work in our hearts. You know each person who's here. You know our stories. You know what each of us individually needs to hear, and you know what we need to hear collectively. And we ask that uh, the truth of this word would not just tickle our minds and, and inspire us with, with good theology, but, Lord, it would, it would get down into our bloodstream, and it would change the way that we live our lives as your followers in this world. And so thank you that your word is good, and it's true, and it shapes us. Lord, I pray for um, friends in this room who, for the first time, are Um, or just beginning to walk with you, um, or walk with you again after many years. And thank you that your grace reaches all of us. And would you just grow us and strengthen us in you this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What happened this last week, I don't know if you saw on the news, um, but one of the greatest paintings on the planet Earth was vandalized with a cream pie. Uh, The Mona Lisa, uh, did anybody see this in the news this week? Um, A man disguised as an elderly woman, um, not sure how that went or how he got through, but he's in a wheelchair and he makes his way up right to the Mona Lisa, pulls out a cream pie and pies Mona Lisa. And maybe some of you are like, oh, that's horrific, and you're crying, and some of you are like, that's actually kind of funny. Um, you know, the good news is, as you may know, Lisa sits behind a bulletproof glass, and so the cream pie uh, actually has no impact to the painting. Um, and though silly as it is, this is, I think, a, a, a painful visualization of some of the ugliness that we experience in our world, uh, some of the corrosive realities of our world. Um, in the midst of beauty, there is, this, there is the reality of things that are just ugly, like this moment here. And it might be a funny, ugly moment, but there's other moments that are ugly that aren't so funny. Um, this last week, we, 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 another news uh, story was the defamation case between Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, and many people were following that. Um, we talk about and we know ongoingly there's these deep political visions, uh, political divisions in our culture, social divisions. There's, of course, war continuing in the Ukraine. Um, there's violence uh, in our schools, uh, mass shootings. Uh, there's fighting in our homes uh, with our spouses or with our siblings or with our friends or with our neighbors. And Crete at the time, as David mentioned, was one of the most corrupt places on earth. 
And so here is this island in the middle of the Mediterranean, corrosive, corrupt. You know, as, as Paul says in the early chapters, Christians are seen as liars. They're just, it's just a corrupt culture. And there are these little seedlings of Jesus' communities growing all throughout this island. They're just growing up all over the place. And in the midst of, of, of these communities, as you know, this is the whole reason why Paul is writing to Titus, there are these teachers that are claiming the name of Jesus who are coming in and they're stirring up trouble. Uh, they're teaching false doctrine. They're dividing households. They're overemphasizing some doctrines and they're underemphasizing other doctrines. And they're creating drama in this culture. We know that from chapter 1, verse 10. And this letter that Paul writes, just as a little review, is about uh, Paul encouraging Titus to help the ordering, to get these churches in order, as it were. Uh, Paul, uh, chapter 1, as, as I walked us through a couple weeks ago, is about healthy doctrine and how Paul really lays out how our churches to interact with each other in our relationships with one another as believers, uh, with uh, healthy doctrine is foundational. Last week, David talked about how are we to relate to one another in our relationships, in our homes. And this week, today, uh, in chapter 3, Paul expands out, and, he, and, and the question on the table is, how are we to live within the complexities of a divided, corrupt world that we find ourselves in? That's the, that's the question. And he, and he really has one thing to say to us in all of chapter 3. And here's what he says. In the midst of division, in the, in the midst of uh, corruption, and in the midst of the ugliness of the world, when you experience that, go on Facebook and post conspiracy theories. <laughs> Publicly demonize the people you disagree with. Call them woke or call them ultra-right conservatives. Here's also what he says, is it not? Be as loud and obnoxious as you can in telling the world how utterly sinful it is. Attempt to control or direct the narrative through media or through legislation. Or maybe this is what Paul says to, to, the, to Titus to tell the believers here on Crete. Just try to make Crete a Christian island. If you could just get that adjective tied to that geography, then we'll be okay. He didn't say any of this. Let me tell you what he says, because it's actually just what I read. What he actually says is in a world that is struggling and moving on many counts away from Jesus and away from Jesus' vision for the world, which we can be honest and transparent about that and say that's reality in our culture. Nobody's arguing that here. He says there is one simple thing that we are to be ready to do and it's the thread that runs through all of chapter 3. In the face of corruption, in the face of division, in the face of defamation, in the face of war and violence and slander and hate and anger and rage and fighting, there is one thing that we as followers of Jesus are called to that we find here in chapter 3. He says, be ready for one thing. And we find it here in verse 1. Be ready for every good work. It's at the end of, chapter, it's the end of verse 1 there. Be ready for every good work, okay? This word uh, for um, good 
is a general uh, word for good. Uh, it means the constitution or nature. It's good in nature. And it's a very generalized term here. And in fact, we could use this one phrase because it gets, good gets repeated about four or five times through this whole chapter. It's sort of an umbrella phrase that everything he's going to talk about in this chapter is in essence what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus to do good in the world. And this is a very important point here. Who is the audience here? The audience, when he says in chapter one, chapter 3, verse 1, remind them, them he's talking to are followers of Jesus, people who claim the name of Jesus in these churches on the island of Crete. Okay? He's not talking to the prevailing culture, though it certainly can apply to the prevailing culture. This is a message for those who claim the name of Jesus. And so those of us in this room this morning who profess the name of Jesus, this is a strong drink. This is a hard word. This is a challenging word for us to understand. How then do we relate to those who want nothing to do with Jesus? How do we relate to those outside of the church? How do we relate to those who maybe actually hate the church or hate people who are Christian? What is our response and how do we navigate the complexities of the world we find ourselves in? And he says, be ready for every good work. The language here of work is, could be our actions, just our everyday deeds, the things that we do. So we want to be ready all the time. But it also, specifically in this context, he's also referring to our workplaces, um, where we work. The places we find ourselves where we are under some kind of authority, our parents, our bosses, um, wherever that might be, on a team, our coaches. And he says, be ready. And this word ready is so important in this passage because it's not just this idea of, you know, as you go, whenever you go, there might be an opportunity to do good. He is calling the believers on creed, he's calling us as believers to have an eye, to be ready on the hand as it were. Um, to be um, opportunistic. So as we go through our days, there are opportunities before us all the time to participate in what God is doing in the world and to do good to others around us, specifically in this context, to those who would never step foot in a church environment like this. Now, what I want to do is just kind of walk through verse 2 here um, and, and verse 1 and 2, and talk a little bit about these different things that he tells us to. Some of these he's postured, some of these in the negative things we're not to do, and some of them are things we're supposed to do. And my prayer and, and uh, what, what I think will probably happen as we walk through this, there may be one or two of these that, that by God's grace and by the Spirit's power will convict your heart, will encourage your heart. Maybe there's some of these things in here that you're actually participating in. Maybe there's some of the, these things in here that you're like, that's me. That's something that Jesus needs to work out in me further. That's what this space is about. It's a gym. It's a workout space here to grow together. So can we dive in together on that? Can you please this morning, and, and I just I think the body of Christ just generally needs to be challenged in this. I do too. Don't be a consumer here. Be active with me. Think about these things as it actually practically translates into your life. This was the point that Paul was making to Titus, to the believers uh, on Crete. It wasn't just this sort of philosophical uh, exercise. This was like, no, really, guys, we want to see this actually get into the, the, the blood of your veins and, and into your life, okay? So, First, let's look at this. Avoid quarreling. Okay? 
to speak evil of no one, and then he says, to avoid quarreling. Let me just let that sit for a second here. Does anybody struggle with this? Does anybody have quarrels with people? Your spouse, your friends in the neighborhood? I got into a, I was flirting, if not into a full quarrel through a text thread this week. Not good, is it? Not the place to have a quarrel, isn't it? Pretty quickly, I realized I had to talk to one of my friends who was on thread. Hey, we just need to get together and talk through this because this isn't, this isn't going the way that it should go, okay? Do you have a disagreement with somebody? It's okay to disagree with somebody. I know a lot of our prevailing culture says that's not okay. It's actually a healthy thing. That's part of how we're created to be. We have differing perspectives on things. It's okay to disagree and have a differing conviction about things. The question is, how do you disagree with the person? Do you quarrel with them? Do you fight with them? Do you have to make a point that's so strong that you have put another person down or demonize another person or make another person feel foolish because of their perspective or where they stand on something? Okay? That's not how we navigate and deal with people who aren't followers of Jesus or those who are followers of Jesus. That's not how we are to interact in the new creation. We are to have healthy disagreements and not to be bickering and fighting and quarreling with one another. He also says to not speak, eat, to speak evil of no one. Okay, this is part of how we actually do good in the world is to not quarrel and to not to speak evil of no one. The, the language here in the Greek is that we are not to blaspheme. We're not to slander. We're not to discredit. We're not to damage the reputation of people. Okay? This is a big temptation, is it not? I'm certain that there's somebody in your life that has in some way, shape, or form wronged you, whether it's at work or in your home or in your neighborhood. And the natural inclination of the human heart is to defend itself and to in some way, shape, or form slander, discredit, damage the reputation of because you're hurt. And when you're hurt, the temptation is to lash out and hurt somebody else. Did somebody hurt you? Did somebody do something that vandalized you? Did somebody do something that violated you in a very small way or in a It's going to happen. How do you respond to that? You go to the person and you talk to them directly and express how you've been hurt. You work it out. You don't hold it in. It's one of the most difficult things to do, isn't it? It's really hard when you've been wronged, isn't it? to go to somebody and talk to them about the pain. But maybe somebody in here, maybe some of us need to begin practicing this instead of letting it come out of our mouths as it relates to, to slander or blaspheme or damaging the reputation of somebody. He also says in these first two verses, be submissive and obedient. Okay, For some of us, we're like, I got that one down. Okay, We're rule keepers. We love that structure. Okay, That's not me. I can just confess that. Okay? I, how I'm wired, and some of my friends could tell you over the years, I you know, like to break out of the boundaries and color out of the lines. And so you know, being submissive and obedient is really hard. And it's something that the Lord continues to work out in me. And maybe in some of you too. Maybe some of you who are laughing right now, or maybe you're just laughing at me. I'm not going to speak evil of you. I will not quarrel with you. The heart behind this language is to be honoring to oversight, um, to have a posture of deference, to defer to others, to accept the authority of somebody in your life. Authority is found 10 times together in the scripture. This isn't talking about church leaders, you guys. 
This is talking about your bosses, your employers, your teachers, your parents. Okay? So, so, if I, so if I were to say, you know, Steve, I could put Steve on the spot here. If, you're, if your boss was right here, or the team or the board you report to, whatever it is, and they said, man, they gave a report on Steve, like what would they have to say? Would they say Steve is humble and submissive and obedient? He gets done what we ask him to do. Or would they say, man, he pushes back. Man, it's a burden to lead him, okay? For those of you who are students, if I were to ask your teachers to give a report on you as it relates to this particular quality, this is part of how we are to be ready for every good work in the world is we are to live our lives humbly, obedient, on a team, ready to do good at any moment. He goes on, he sort of furthers this to be gentle, Okay? Um, to be gentle in our behavior to others and how we act. Would someone describe you as a gentle person? Especially when you have to do something you don't want to ask to do something you don't want to do. The word here describes a person who's not only gentle but also fair, who's patient, who's considerate in dealing with others, who's courteous. And then he ends, he says, show perfect courtesy Behind this language is humility, kindness, how we respond to people. This is the good that Jesus has called us to do in the world. And every day through the course of our lives and every interaction with people, whether it's holding a door for somebody, whether it's looking somebody in the eye, we get to participate in what God is doing in the world and be people an aroma of sweetness to the world. There's no doubt, as Christians, we will be a stench to some people, not because of anything we've done, but just simply because of what we believe, and that's a reality. But it all the more is what Paul is saying. You're on Crete. The island is totally corrupt. How do you shine like stars? How do you live brightly? He says, do good. Be people who are of good works. You know, when, when the war in the Ukraine broke out, the first thing that I know Kelly and Vicky and Allie thought about is, we have to go back. I mean, think about the goodness of this act that they did, okay? When a war breaks out, you don't typically want to go towards the conflict of war, do you? You want from it. We're all quite safe over here, aren't we? Instead, the Lord moved this family to say, we have to go back. They've been back, and they, we just, they just had a fundraiser yesterday of the baked goods that David mentioned. They're going to be going back again into the conflict. And you know what that is? It's a different kind of painting than a, a beautiful painting that's been vandalized. It's a painting that is in the midst of the rubble, in the midst of the vandalization, in the midst of the chaos. There's actually good things. There's beautiful things that are growing. Okay? This is a painting that my daughter painted for the show um, that happened yesterday. And this is based on a photo that Ali took in the Ukraine. And what you see is in the chaos of the rubble and the carnage, there is this point of light, this point of beauty, this flower, this sunflower that's growing out of the rubble. It's a profound image of what our lives are to look like as people compelled by the gospel of grace to do good in the world. And I want to, you know, 
the first two verses here are a little hard, aren't they? I mean, I hope they are challenging to us, and I hope that the Spirit of God is convicting you over these things. But I also want to take a moment to encourage us because this is just one example. The Hudikoffs are just one example of how the Lord is working in people's lives. But there's other examples. There's other wonderful examples. I got this text from a young man uh, last week, and here's what he said to me. My heart is in a state of living today. Okay, so here he is going through his day, going through the ordinary of his day, okay? But he says, my heart is in a state of living today. I decided to go with my wife to the lake to take care of her grandparents. They are degrading quickly, but spending time with them is good for her soul. And listen to the language he uses. And I am happy to be here to support her. You say, well, that's what husbands do. That is what husbands do. But it is a picture. It is a sunflower in the carnage of relationships in our world. There in that moment, the Spirit of God is evoking and provoking his heart. He said, I could do anything on this weekend. There's a lot of different things I'd like to do. He has no obligations, but he says, I'm going to go with my wife and serve her family. And he says, I'm happy to be there to support her. Okay. I'm going to put my son on the spot. He went on a camping trip last week on Memorial Day weekend with a buddy. And, and there on the camping trip, there's a young man who has significant medical issues going on. He said, you know, I was asking him on the ride home, how'd the trip go? He said, it went great. We had a ton of fun. And there was a young man there. And my friend and I took him under our wing. And he was like our buddy for the weekend. We just kind of invested into him and spent time with him and served him. They did good to him. They benefited him. Their lives on a trip. They were there to enjoy Memorial Day weekend. And there, they were ready at the hand, ready to do good to those around him. I think about Dan uh, and Katie Weatherby. And Dan shared this story. I'm going to put some of you on the spot here. Okay, these are, these are stories that are emerging from within the body that we should be encouraged about that are examples of the exact thing that we find here in Titus 3. You know, we have a partnership with a local leader named Rita in um, one of the communities. Uh, and she's constantly in need of food for families. And so we've collected uh, food for families at times. And thank you for being generous in that. And Dan said, well, let's not just let this be one time. I actually want to put a box on my front porch in my neighborhood and share with my neighbors that we are collecting food for some of our neighbors who are in need. And you know what? He's rallied, they've rallied their neighborhood and people bring food regularly and they just put it in these, in the, in, on the box in his porch so that then he can go and do good. So he's spreading the, the goodness of God and his grace here right in his neighborhood. He's ready at the hand, ready to do good. Okay, I think about Todd, you're going to hear about this story in a couple weeks when we were in Robinwood, a little girl runs up to him and wraps her arms around him and he can hear her heart beating as she says, when you guys left, I was so sad. Okay, a fatherless little girl who's compelled and, and, uh, from a, a fatherly figure in that moment is like a cup of cold water. It's like a feast that this little girl rarely has. It's good. It's a good thing that's happening in that moment. I think about Hillary, who uh, has formed a welcome circle to come alongside of the Afghan refugees and the team that's come around to to serve them and love them. It's good. It is good things that this team is doing, coming alongside these families, getting them houses to rent, getting them jobs, getting them cars. These are the real things that the people of Jesus are doing. And I don't say that in any way, shape, or form to say, rah, rah, people of downtown hope, or rah, rah, Christians. 
What I'm saying is, this is what Paul is calling Titus to call the believers to. And this is what I am calling you to today. This is what we're calling you to. And for some of us, we are on the front lines every day, ready at the hand. And for some of us, we are going through life utterly focused on our own prosperity and our own existence. And the question for you this morning, the question for all of us this morning is, where has God called us to participate in the good things that he's doing in the world? Now, it's really interesting because Paul doesn't stop there in, chap- in verse 2 and kind of say, okay, here's what you're supposed to do, now do it, does he? He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He actually does that. Now, popular culture would say that, wouldn't it? Here's the good you're supposed to do. Now, on your own strength, on your own ability, go for it. Go do good, okay? He doesn't do that. He actually does the opposite, which is a little bit disturbing. Do we, do you see, just follow with me here what he does in, cha- in verse 3, okay? He, he kind of challenges them, exhorts them, and then he says this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, that doesn't seem very encouraging, does it? I mean, here he is, just go do good. And by the way, if you remember, you never did good before. These are not the things that ever marked your life. Why would he shift with such severity? Why would he do that? And this brings us to our, our, our second observation. We, we have talked about what it is that we're to do, which is good in the world. But, but Paul gets here at something else. Why are we to do good? Why are we to do good? Have you ever thought about that? Like, what actually is the motivation to do good? And there are certainly many motivations. But what Paul is doing here, he's creating a critical tension. And, and what he wants us to to understand is the key invitation of this passage. It's actually the key invitation to the Christian life because oftentimes what's spoken or what's heard or what's communicated is, as a Christian, God calls you to do good and you need to go do good. And if you don't do good, God's actually going to whack you and he doesn't really love you and you'll never gain his favor. That's typically how it goes. That is works-based legalism. That's a good works gospel. That's why what Paul does here in verse 3 is so important. He actually wants us to see first how terribly helpless, how not good our lives were before we met Christ. And why does he want to do this? So that we might understand the weight and the power of what he is about to pen here in verse 4. And again, Paul does this in his letters. He did it. We looked at it earlier. He sometimes sometimes breaks out into poetry and sometimes breaks into song. And it's like that's this verse 4 through 7 here is actually, it's a Trinitarian poem. If you follow, you'll see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in it. And he breaks into this Trinitarian poem. So he, he calls us to do good. He says, but before you met Christ... You were just as bad as everybody on Crete. But happened to you. He wants to remind them of something. And this is what he reminds him of, reminds them of. But when the goodness and loving kindness 
of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Isn't that interesting? He calls us to do all these good things. And then he actually says, but that's not actually what transformed your life in the first place. He saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, So we have the Father, then we have the Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, the Son, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, this is one run-on sentence this poem is in in, in the Greek. And he uses, he pulls a word good here, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared in verse 4. But he uses a different word than he uses in the first, uh, in, in verse 1. He uses a word in Greek that means moral excellence or moral goodness in deep character or demeanor. This is a divine good that Paul talking about here. And it's not a divine good that they mustered up. It's a divine good that appeared, as he says. It's something that drops in into the human condition, into the world, a divine goodness. It's a quality that expresses itself in action. This is why it also includes this idea of loving kindness. And where did this goodness appear? It appeared in the person of Jesus. It is an ultimate good. And it's not because of our good works but it is because of his mercy. And this is the foundation of God's response himself to a corrupt humanity, is that his very nature is good. And where the world that we live in deserves something other than goodness, God responds to our sin and to the corruption of the world with goodness and mercy. It's the opposite of how we would want to respond to people who have wronged us, is it not? This is the basis. This is the why. This is the foundation out of which all of our good deeds as followers of Jesus flow. This is why when he says in verse 6, the, the, the Spirit has been put it literally means to spill out into us in such a way that it overflows out of us. And this mercy was displayed through the cross. And this is why the very next verse, he says these words, okay? So he, 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 in this poem, he proclaims the gospel, that God did something good for us. And then he says this, this saying is trustworthy. The, the poem that he just penned is trustworthy. And Paul says to Titus, I want you to insist on these things. I want you to insist on this poem. I want you to insist on this gospel. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Do you see how it just comes full circle? He calls us to good works. He calls us to do good in the world. And then he says there's not a chance you can do it on your own, but there's an ultimate good that has come into the world 
and insist on that goodness that has come into the world and meditate on that goodness that has come into the world and believe that goodness of the gospel that has come into, your, into the world and into your hearts. And that becomes the resource through which we are compelled to do good in the world. That is what motivates a follower of Jesus. Why would a family run into a war country? Because they know how good God has been to them and how he has shown mercy to them and how he's met them in their pain and their loss and their sin. And how can they not go to, this to, to a nation that's war-torn? Why does my son on a camping trip think about somebody other than himself because he understands and he gets the goodness that, of God that has been dropped into his life. Why does my friend text me this story about his wife? Why does he love his wife in that way? Why is he willing to lay his life down for his wife? Because God has been good to him in that way. And that is what compels us to do good in the world. It is the ultimate goodness of God as displayed on the cross. And it is here, in the wake of divine goodness, that goodness breaks into the world. It's not a pie that vandalizes beauty, but it actually is good works that are in themselves beautiful. Because the language that Paul uses here in verse 8 when he says, be careful to devote themselves to good works, these things are excellent and profitable for people. He changes the word for good yet again. And this time, Greek word, kalon, which is goodness, which is good, but it describes goodness with an aesthetic quality. In other words, what he's saying is the goodness of God that drops into our lives produces in us a desire to do things that are good in the world that end up being so good and so sweet and so tasty that people experience them with pleasure. Okay, this is the same thing that he says in Titus 2 9, where he says, In every way, make the teaching about God our Savior attractive or adorn the doctrine of God. It's the same language here that when we participate in God's goodness in the world and when we do good things, the watching world around us sees and experiences those good acts as something that are like a cup of cold water on a hot day or like a sunflower in the midst of carnage. It's the opposite of what People experienced when the Mona Lisa was pied. That was beauty that was vandalized. This is beauty in the midst of vandalization. And they're two very different things. And the body of Christ is called to be this kind of picture. That's the picture that we're to be. We're to be out of the, the, all the sunlight and all the, uh, the, um, all the nourishment that comes from heaven to earth in us as a sunflower, we are to put on display the beauty of God in our good works here, our kalon here, as it were, in Greek, become what becomes attractive for the world. The pressure's off of us. We don't have to do this ourselves. But what an honor and a gift to start to think about that when you wake up in the morning and when you go about your work day tomorrow and when you have interactions with neighbors and friends and strangers, 
that the God of the universe would use your life to display his goodness as a sweet aroma and as something beautifully expressed in the world. That is a gift. And that is something that I want to encourage us to devote ourselves to. Titus insists on these things so that the body of believers may be careful to devote themselves to these beautiful works, these good works. Downtown Hope, see the goodness of God as displayed on the cross. You were not good. I was not good. But his goodness has reached us. Now may we go into the world to make and create and to do good, wonderful, astonishing, and beautiful things. Let's pray.